0: quick announcement um, we had originally planned on having our sunrise service outside of the church building over here to our left at six fifteen in the morning and just had you know, risers you know scheduled to be delivered and then I started looking at the weather and it was chance of rain, 40% chance of rain, 56, now it's up to 80% chance of rain. So we will have a sunrise service, we'll do it inside, we'll open up all the windows so it feels like we're outside, (laughs) and we'll have our sunrise service, it'll be a little bit warmer, no rain, and then we'll have our 1045 service this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Doug is up and he'd love to bring one. Write to your seat so you can follow along with us. We're going to look at verses 35 through 50 this afternoon. Matthew 27, verse 35 through 50. Title of my message this afternoon is God's most painful moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, this Good Friday as it's known, to be able to just give you thanks and praise for what you have done, what you accomplished for each one of us, not only in this room, Lord, but the entire world, giving your life for the world, Lord. Uh, but those that, that know you, Lord, those that experience your forgiveness and come to you in faith, Lord, we really know what this means. Lord, we, we recognize that the the suffering, the pain, the, the, the price that was paid for us. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we can have to just spend a little bit of time recalling that day and what took place. And Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here uh, in this room or anyone watching online that does not have a personal relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, or not born again today, they really don't know what this means yet. Lord, I pray that they would hopefully come to know you as their Lord and their Savior this afternoon. We commit our time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sean and I were laughing the other day about a song we can do for Good Friday. And and, uh, I thought we could do this song. You can figure it out. I've heard a thousand stories about what they say you're like. I've heard a tender whisper of love in the dead of night. And you tell, tell me you're pleased and I'm never alone. It's a good, good Friday. It's what it is. It's a good, good Friday. It's what it is. And I thought, that's really, it fits, you know. We have a good, good Father. That's who He is. And that's why we have a good, good Friday. You know, Friday means different things to different people. For many, Friday means just the end of a work week. Uh, you, know, the, 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 you know, for many, it's TGIF. Thank God it's Friday and, and time to get out and party. And I'm sure that's not going to change today for many people in the world. They're going to go out and break every commandment of God and not even give it a thought to what Christ has done for them. Good Friday is also known as Holy Friday or Great Friday or Black Friday, which is interesting because the day after Thanksgiving is also known as Black Friday where you can get all sorts of good deals. But let me tell you, the blackest, the darkest Friday of all was in Jerusalem, Israel, some 2,000 years ago. It was the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of the sin of humanity. We call it Good Friday, I guess, because it's the best deal you could ever get given to you and I on that day. Because if you put your trust in Jesus Christ and the one that died there for us, then you have had all of your sins washed away, forgiven, and you've been given the gift of eternal life. That's the best Friday deal I've ever heard of. That's great. Now, before we can fully understand what, what that means, we need to know a little bit about what happened on Good Friday back in Jerusalem so many years ago. We all know the story. We read it many times. Judas Iscariot decided to betray his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. The Bible tells us that Satan entered into his heart. But in reality, there were other forces in play on that day as well. Forces more powerful than the religious rulers, or the Roman government, or even Judas Iscariot, or anyone else. For all practical purposes, God himself was bringing about the events of the crucifixion. And in something that, that sort of boggles the mind. The forces of Satan were moving towards, and the forces of God were moving towards the same objective. And in a rare moment in human history, the forces of God and Satan were going in the same direction, but with different objectives. Satan, blinded by his desire to destroy Christ, thought by killing him he could eliminate him as a threat, not realizing he was playing right into the hand of God. Because long before there was a Jerusalem, long before there was Israel, long before there was a garden called Eden, or for that matter, a place called Earth, a decision was made in eternity that Jesus Christ would come to this earth and die. Because God knew that man would sin, that man would fall, that they would eat of the forbidden fruit. He knew that they would blow it, He knew we would sin. We're told, in fact, in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 through 20, speaking of our redemption, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed, catch this, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In other words, before the foundations of this earth were created, the decision has already been made for Christ to be slain for all of mankind. In fact, Jesus told his disciples how he was going to suffer, how he was going to be betrayed, how he was going to be crucified and died, and how he would rise again on the third day. It was all planned out. Now we also know, That when Jesus was delivered before Pontius Pilate, this Roman governor, he was not happy. He didn't really want to deal with this, you know, something as controversial as the crucifixion of Jesus. So he scourged him, hoping that would appease a bloodthirsty crowd. I don't think many of us realize how barbaric and how painful this scourging was. Back in those days, the Romans used something called the cat of nine tails, which was a whip with numerous strands that were embedded with pieces of, of metal and stone and glass. And every time those strands would come down on the on the back of, a, of the victim, they, they would literally rip into the skin and all the way through to the skeletal tissue. Many people did not even uh, survive the scourging. So here we know that Pilate had Jesus scourged. and he brought him before the crowd and said, Behold the man, hoping to elicit some sort of sympathy for him. Say, that's good enough. But it wasn't. Instead, the bloodthirsty crowd chanted in unison, Crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. So he goes to the cross. Now look at your Bibles, to Matthew 27, starting in verse 25, rather 35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabatini, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Death by crucifixion was one of the most disgraceful, cruelest ways to be put to death. It was usually reserved for slaves or for foreign revolutionaries or criminals of the worst kind. The Romans used it quite often. According to historical records, the Romans crucified some 30,000 people. Again, we know that Jesus had already been whipped using the cat of nine tails. They took his shredded back, put him on the, on the cross. And you have to understand that the feet of one being crucified would be crossed over, a spike driven through the feet and then the spike driven to the hands. Actually, when a person died upon the cross, it was not because of the blow of the strikes themselves. It was death through suffocation because the crucified person, they were unable to breathe. And the only way to get air was to push themselves up uh, with, that, with their feet on that little platform on the cross to get that air and then sink back down again. So imagine the pain and the anguish Jesus pressed upon it as he pressed upon his feet and that spike driven through them, pulling his body up with his hands and, and just, just to get a gulp of air. Added to the fact that there was congestion of the blood in the head and the lungs and in the heart, the swelling of virtually every vein in the body all combined together to make crucifixion the cruelest of all deaths. And Jesus pulls himself up on the cross in that pain that is unimaginable And he utters seven statements from Calvary. And you know what the very first statement that Jesus said upon that cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His very first thought was praying for his enemies. Now later he said, I thirst. If his first statement would have been, I thirst, I would have said, I understand that. I, I get it. But to hear him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His thoughts were not for himself. Nor were they even for his mother who was standing there at the foot of the cross or his own disciples. A little bit later, he would say, Woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, referring to John the Beloved who was going to take care of his mom now that the Lord was going to die and ascend into heaven. No, his first thoughts were for the very individuals who had driven the spikes into his hand, driven the spikes into his feet, and whipped his back open wide. And this was such a dramatic statement that it caused the immediate conversion uh, of, of one of the two thieves next to him. You see, in Matthew's Gospel, we read that the, both thieves joined in the chorus of mockery against the crucified Lord, saying, he saved, himself, let him, uh, he saved others, let him save himself, if you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross. And it amazes me that, that someone who's also being crucified would have the presence of mind to say something like that. But here they were, so filled with rage and anger, they were repeating what the people at the foot of the cross were saying. But then when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, one of those thieves instantaneously came to his senses and said, Whoa, I can't, I can't. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. After a time, The Bible says there was this mysterious darkness that fell upon the earth. lasted for three hours, from 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon. Can you imagine? I mean, it's rainy out today, but imagine if it got pitch black outside. Just dark as dark, like like when you can't see the moon. Pretty scary. You'd think something was up. Let me tell you, something was up. It was dark when Jesus died so that those who would trust him wouldn't have to live in darkness. Wouldn't have to live in the bondage of sin and the, the death sentence. Well, then during that three hours of silence, it was suddenly broken by another cry from our Lord. Verse 46, when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was a moment that I believe led to God's most painful moment. As the darkness is pierced by the voice of Christ when he gives this fourth statement of the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why would Jesus say such a thing? Well, for starters, it's fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 1, that said that's exactly what the Messiah would say as it hung there on the cross. They pierced my hands and my feet. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's fulfillment of prophecy. We hear these words, they surprise us. They disarm us and cause us to wonder, what did He really mean by that? I think it's hard for us as human beings really even to fathom what was taking place here. See, we are really on holy ground when we look at this subject. Because it's believed that, that by many that it was at this time that Jesus was bearing the sin of the entire world. Had to happen some point during the crucifixion, this seemed like this would have been the moment. And by the way, these weren't the delusions of a man in pain. His faith was not failing him. These were the words of a man who was literally forsaken by God for a time. He was merely stating the truth of the situation. Now, it should be noted that this is not the way that God normally deals with His own when they face life's hardest moments. In fact, when we as Christians go through a crisis, it's then when God will reveal Himself in a special way and walk with us through those times of difficulties and hardship. But in this particular situation, Jesus said this because it was an accurate assessment of what was actually transpiring. A great gulf was separating Him from the holiness of God. Jesus had no sin of his own, but the Bible says the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I don't think there's any way we could even begin to fathom what he was going through at that moment. All of our worst fears about the horrors of hell and, and more were realized by him as he received the due, penalty, the due penalty of others' wrongdoings. You see, to be forsaken by God, even for a short time for Jesus, was a fate worse than death. Why is that? Why is that? Well, Jesus was God. He, he never had a single thought uh, out of harmony with the Father, much less ever committed any sin. The, this was a man who was in perfect harmony with his Father at all times. And now he's not only having to face the sin of one person or two people or five people, but sin of the entire world. That's a lot of sin. And he's bearing it all. And what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's worth noting that Jesus at this point did not address God as his Father. He didn't say, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? But my God, the reason being is because the Son had taken upon Himself the sin of the world. So the Father had to turn His back on Him. And back at 1 verse 13, it says, of God, you are pure eyes and to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. That is why, though the physical pain was huge, this was God's most painful moment. I believe this is the moment that Paul talks about in Second Corinthians 5.21 when he says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He was forsaken so we could be forgiven. Isaiah 53, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him smitten by God, stricken, uh, stricken and afflicted, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Isaiah goes on to say that it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Why? Why did this happen? Why did our Lord have to go through something as awful as this? Let me give you four reasons, and then we'll enter into the time of communion first reason he went through all of this to show us his love for us to show us his love for us if you're ever tempted to doubt that god loves you just take a long look at the cross of calvary and remember what jesus did for you that day jesus said in john 3 16 for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son ephesians 5 25 says christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and, of course, Paul said he loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus was forsaken by God so I don't have to be. Jesus was forsaken for God for a moment that I might enjoy his presence forever. Jesus was forsaken so I could be forgiven. Jesus entered the darkness that I might walk in the light. Second reason Jesus went through this was to absorb the wrath of Almighty God. To absorb the wrath of God. You see, if God were not just, there would be no demand for His Son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for His Son to suffer and die. But because He's both just and loving, He, must, he met the demands of justice in His Son and went to bear the brunt of all of sin. Because God's Word says, the soul that sins shall surely die. Someone had to pay the price. Jesus was the only one qualified. He paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could never pay. The number three, Jesus went through this in order to cancel the legal demands against us. And I think the common thought in the world today is that, that for most people, that God grades on a curve. In other words, if I live a good life and try to do good things and be a good person, I'll go to heaven. But if I you know, live a bad life, then maybe I won't get to heaven. Folks, that's simply not true. Bottom line is we have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's commandments. There's no salvation by balancing records. The only salvation that we have is by canceling records. Because there were some serious charges against you and I because of our sin. And the wages of that sin, the penalty for that sin is death. And that brings us to the last reason Jesus suffered and died, to provide our forgiveness and justification. This means that no matter what you've done, If you've turned from that sin and you've acknowledged it and asked God for his forgiveness, you have been forgiven. Not only that, the deal gets better. (laughs) You've been justified. Let me illustrate this for you. Let's say that you somehow got carried away with your credit cards. And and you had a really uh, high credit limit. And you ran up your credit cards to $10 million. Not that anyone would give you a credit limit of $10 million. But just for the sake of this illustration, you ran up a debt for $10 million. Obviously, you could not pay that debt. So you're arrested, you go to prison, and then your story ran in the newspaper. Some very wealthy man, heard of your situation, was so touched by it, and decided to pay your debt. So he came, he got the money out, and he took care of all your responsibilities, and you were now debt-free. You owe $10 million. Now you don't owe a dime. So you want to meet this person. You want to thank this person. And he sat down with them at a restaurant and said, Now, how thankful you were for him to take care of that debt for you. It's just so amazing that you'd do this for me. And Then he said, Well, I'm happy to do this for you. I understand how difficult your situation was. And by the way, on your way home tonight, why don't you stop by the ATM and just check and see what your account balance is. He said, I know what my balance is. It's zero. It's zilch. It's, it's not. Uh, it's empty. Well, you might want to check, check again. So you head on home, you pull over, you, you check the ATM, and you slide your card through, you punch in your pin number, you hit the button, and, and you check your balance. $20 million. Whoa! That's justification. Just as if you've never had that debt to begin with, just as if you've never said forgiveness is having that debt that you owed canceled, justification is having something else put into your account. Christ not only forgave you of your sins, but He put righteousness into your account. That's what He did for us at the cross of Calvary. Why? Because He loves us so much. Hebrews 12 gives us an insight into what kept Jesus going as He faced the horrors of the cross. Seeing that we also are encompassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does easily beset us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You. We were the joy set before Him. You were the reason. I was the reason He went to the cross in the first place. So we could have open access to the throne of God 24-7, no matter what you're going through. His ear is open to our cry because Jesus made the way. Why did Jesus go to the cross? You were the reason. I was the reason he went to the cross of Calvary. Everything he did, he did for us. To show his love for us. To absorb the wrath of God. To cancel the legal demands against us. To provide our forgiveness and justification. If that is not reason enough to praise him with our whole heart, soul, mind and strength that I don't know what is. Taking on our punishment that we so rightly deserved in order to save us and give us life and abundant life. An eternal life. At this point, I want the, the worship team to come, come up forward and, and the guys that are going to pass out communion come on up as well. Um, and we're going to enter into this time here. And as they do, I want to take us back about 16 hours from this point. See, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, uh, starting at about verse 14, we're brought back to the pages of Scripture to the time before Jesus would die on the cross. 16 hours before we would take on all of our sin, all the sins of the entire world. He's there at the table. And you know, they had the table. It wasn't, you know, like Michelangelo's picture of the table. and They're all lined up. It was down on the ground. And they're leaning to one side. And they're all around the table. He's got the apostles there. And he says this to them in verse 15. With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of this until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That the apostles, regardless of how many times Jesus had told them, He would suffer and He would die. They really didn't grasp what Jesus was about to do. Jesus knew within the next 16 hours He would finally solve the problem between God and man. He would finally bridge the gap between a sinful man and a holy God. Uh, God Himself in the flesh is saying, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Then he tells them what he's about to do. His body that would be broken. His blood that would be shed for all of mankind. When we look at what Jesus has done for us, how can we deny his love for us? The writer of Hebrews poses it this way. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews two three. So, to say, all that to say, if you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, do not neglect. Do not... Ignore what Jesus Christ has done for you. Surrender your heart and life to Him today. Confess your sin. He's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive you your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. God's calling. I want you to add this to your study, Tom. You know, it's always at the point where you know, you're giving an invitation for someone to come to faith in Christ. devil doesn't want that to happen. So it causes distractions and stuff. And so God, even at this point, is saying, listen, if you want to come to faith in Jesus Christ, now is the time. You need to do it today. For us as believers, communion is a time where we can remember just what we talked about, all that Jesus has accomplished for us. To know that even when we blow it, even when we sin, because we don't become sinless, we know that He will forgive us. How do we know that? Because of the cross, what He did for us on the cross. So even when we fail, He's there to forgive us. We just need to seek Him with open hearts, contrite hearts, knowing that the Lord gives grace to the humble. So let this communion time be for us a time of remembering what Jesus did for us. Also, a time of opening our hearts before Him. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Essentially, we can pray as the psalmist, Lord, if there's anything in my life that's hindering my walk with you after seeing all that you've done for me, forgive me, Lord. I confess it to you. If I'm not walking with you as I should, Lord, in response to all you've done for me, Lord, I'm seeking Forgiveness. Cleanse me, Lord. God will forgive you. Whatever it is, search your hearts. Make sure you're right with the Lord. And if you are, then just praise Him. Worship Him for what He's done. At this point, I'm going to have the worship team lead us in worship as we pass out the bread and the juice. We'll, they'll be on top of each other. We'll take it, we'll pray, and we'll take it together. And so.